Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we study God's word together, let's bow our heads together and ask his guidance and direction on our study. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. As we study your word, we come to understand that you are a God who is righteous, a God who is just, and a God who is love. These are not attributes that conflict with one another, but work together in perfect harmony, that your love is righteous and it is just, and your righteousness and justice always operate in love. And by studying these attributes of your character and how they work themselves out, both in terms of human history and in terms of our own salvation and the work that Christ did on the cross, we come to have a greater understanding of just who you are. And as we come to understand who you are, we come to understand who we are, what you have done for us, and how we are to live for you and to glorify you. So now, Father, as we continue our study on the gospel, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, coming to understand the significance and implications of these doctrines, may we be challenged, may we come to a greater understanding of how we are to explain the gospel and the implications of the gospel, not just for our justification, but also for our post-justification spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's no surprise to any of you that the gospel has often been a point of controversy down through church history, trying to define just what the gospel is, what is the good news about Jesus Christ. What is it that we are supposed to uh, communicate? What is it that we are supposed to believe? Are really two different questions. And it's important to raise that issue and to analyze it in terms of those different, those two questions because of certain things that have, uh, that have been raised in not just in recent weeks, but also uh, these are questions that I find have continually come up in, in my ministry uh, over the last 20 or 30 years, and I think there are questions that come up with uh, perennially. People wonder, question, debate over just what is the essence of the gospel. Today, the battle among 
uh, evangelicals and conservative evangelicals is a battle really between those who are called lordship salvation and those who are identified as free grace or unmerited favor, those who emphasize the fact that works are not included in the gospel or in uh, salvation either at the front end by saying that you must believe in Jesus and do something else such as believe and obey uh, certain principles in Scripture, believe and join a church, believe and baptize, believe and do good works. That is a front door belief plus approach to the gospel. Now, that's not lordship. The subtlety in lordship salvation, and sometimes lordship is, is almost a misnomer for some who hold this, the, the position. The, the problem in lordship salvation is that they, they add something subtly through the back door. And basic contention is that if you have the kind of faith that justifies, then that kind of faith will necessarily produce certain kinds of works. And those works then validate the fact and give you assurance that you are indeed saved. And so there are those who hold that position, and we'll identify it by the term perseverance salvation, the idea that you can identify your own salvation by the works that are there. And if you don't have certain kinds of works, then maybe you should question whether or not you're saved. Now, that gets into some passages that I'm not really addressing in this particular series, but that's the context in which we find ourselves. There are those too also that come along and want to say, okay, what is the gospel itself? If you boil everything down to just the just a core proposition, is there just one simple body of, 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 of content that you must communicate and must believe, and anything other than the, that formula, anything other than that, you're not, you didn't really believe the gospel. You believed some things about Jesus maybe, you believed some things about his work on the cross, but if you didn't just, just nail this one little minimalist gospel, then... You didn't get it right. And that has come up within the structures of what has been known as the free grace movement. And there have been those in recent years who've come along and said that, and they've asked the question, which I would, I would suggest is a wrong question, that what is the, what is the minimal gospel? That if you boil it all down, what, what is, what is, what is the core of the gospel? And they have identified it as just simply believing a promise that Jesus can give you eternal life. And, and the illustration that they use is that if you're out here on a desert island somewhere and you had no knowledge whatsoever about the Bible or Jesus or anything else, let's say you're a Hindu or you're a Buddhist, and you're out here on this desert island and a bottle floats up, and inside of this bottle is a page of Scripture. But the only thing that you can read is from, from a couple of verses, because other words have been washed out, is that Jesus said, I can give you eternal life if you believe in me. Is that enough? Is that the gospel? And the problem with that is that because there's no context, you don't know who Jesus is. You don't know if it's talking about Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus Garcia. You don't know. 
You don't know that anything about his deity. You don't know anything about the cross. You are just you just have this statement that somebody named Jesus says they can give you eternal life if you believe in him. Problem that we see in the way this has been structured is that we come out saying, well, you don't know who Jesus is. There's no mention of the cross. And the, one of the things that bothers me is this comes from John chapter 5, which is before the cross. So you don't have Jesus making clear statements about his work on the cross prior to the cross, but you do after the cross. So can we go to a statement that is made before Christ dies for our sins and say that sums up the gospel? You don't even have to know Jesus died on the cross. And there are those in this camp that have said that there will be many people in heaven who will be surprised when they get there and discover that Jesus actually died on the cross for their sins. Church-age believers, not Old Testament believers. So this position has been called the crossless gospel. And that's the context of some of the debate that's going on among those in, in the free grace camp. And I tell you this because you need to be aware of what nuances and trends and things like that are going on around us. Well, in, in response to that, there are those within the free grace movement who have also tried to refine, define the gospel that the cross needs to be at the center of the gospel. Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I came to you to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, that that is the, the heart of the gospel. Now, they're not trying to answer this question of what is the minimal in, amount of information somebody needs to know to be saved. I think that's a wrong question throughout church history. When people start asking questions, sometimes they ask wrong questions and you end up getting distracted into things that are not are not really really relevant. Well, in this, there are those who've come along and said, "Well, to, the the content of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and that He was buried, and that He rose again, and that as part of what you must believe, as opposed to part of what you must communicate." in your witness, what you must believe is that Jesus died and rose again. And if you believe he died on the cross for your sins, but you didn't believe that he rose from the dead, then you're not saved. Well, wait a minute. That presents a problem. What do we mean when, if we assert that you don't, if somebody doesn't believe in the resurrection, they're not saved? So, I decided after the message two weeks ago on uh, the resurrection, on Resurrection Sunday, is to take three or four weeks just to go through these passages that are asserted that you must believe in the resurrection in order to be saved. And last time we looked at 1 Corinthians 15, and today and next week we'll look at another set of verses that focus on this issue as well. And this is a set of verses that has other problems uh, with it as well in terms of interpreting the verse. Romans 10, 9, and 10 states that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Now, if we just stop there, we, get, we recognize this is a key verse for the Lordship salvation crowd because they come to this verse and they say, see, you have to... 
admit that Jesus is Lord, that's what you have to do to be saved. Seems to be what the passage is saying, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, these verses have a lengthy history of misuse and abuse in witnessing. I don't know what your background is, but I remember some years ago uh, when I was in college running across a gospel presentation called The Roman Road. And you start with Romans uh, 3.23, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And then you end up going to Romans 10.9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Unfortunately, two of those verses don't have anything to do with justification. Romans 6.23, which... I know you got to go back and listen to my Roman series on Romans 6, 7, and 8 to get this. But Romans 6, 7, 6 23 that says uh, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life isn't talking about salvation there. Paul quit talking about justification at the end of chapter 5, and he starts talking about the spiritual life in Romans chapter uh, chapter 6. Romans 6 through 8 is is walking in newness of life, as we'll see, in Romans 6.3. So in context, the wages of sin is death. It's not talking about eternal condemnation, spiritual death. It is talking about carnal death. The wages of sin in the context is if you are a believer who should be walking in newness of life, but you're not, then the problem is you're in, in temporal death or carnal death. You're out of fellowship. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In context of Romans 6, the life that he's talking about is the newness of life that comes as a result of being baptized into Christ's death, Romans 6, 2. And we're going to have to cover that before we can even understand Romans 10, 9, and 10. Romans isn't a simple book. And it's important to understand these things because in common evangelical jargon, we use words like saved and righteousness as if they always mean the same thing, and that is in terms of uh, what we call phase one justification. So the question that I'm attempting to answer are two. The questions I'm attempting to answer are two. Number one, what should we communicate to those to whom we witness? When we are talking to somebody who has no idea of who Jesus is, what Jesus did for them, they have no idea that uh, of heaven or anything else, what do we need to communicate to them? Now, you and I both know that we meet people who are coming from all kinds of backgrounds. You can be talking to your next-door neighbor who might be a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim. They bring to the table a certain amount of baggage, uh, thought baggage, ideas, worldview that they bring. And so when we are talking to them, we need to make sure they understand certain terms. If you talk to a Hindu and say that Jesus is the Son of God, they're thinking about derivative deity. How's that for a nice phrase? He's not God. He's just God's Son. He's, he's not eternal deity. 
and he's just another sub-deity that we'll just put up on the, on the bookshelf with our other 900 deities that we worship. And so we haven't defined, we ha- in talking to a Hindu, it's necessary to define the, who the Jesus is that you're talking about. And that's what we find in, the, in Acts. When we look at these examples of Peter, uh, John, Stephen, Paul, explaining the gospel, there are two parts, the who Jesus is and the what he did. You find that Peter says it is this Jesus whom you crucified that God raised from the dead that you need to believe in. So he defines the who Jesus is and the what, because if you're believing in the wrong Jesus, are you really saved? If you're believing in Jesus Garcia, can that save you? So what do we do? So we have to understand what we communicate to those to whom we witness. We have to have some idea of how to talk to different people because people don't always come from the same perspective. And there's too many Christians, I find, that are not really comfortable evangelizing because they don't know enough and they can't really talk to people. They get all, you know, uptight inside and they get defensive and they can't really talk to an unbeliever because uh, they, they really don't understand the issues well enough and so they think they can just do a little drive-by evangelism and, and throw John 3.16 or Acts 16.31 at somebody and that's enough. See, I did my job. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Well, they don't know who the Lord Jesus Christ is, what they're saved from, what they're saved to. They don't understand any of that. So we have to dialogue with people. And there are people that you can witness to because they've already heard the gospel and been exposed to content eight or nine times. And when you come to them, they're like a fruit ripe for the picking. And you say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, you know, I need to do that. I understand exactly what that means. Other people have never heard this before at all. And it may surprise you to recognize that we live in a nation today where there are so many people that have never gone to church, never been exposed to any kind of Bible teaching at all. I had a young man in my church in Connecticut who had grown up in a home where his parents were scientists, and he never saw a Bible. He never heard anything about the Bible. He had just barely heard anything about Jesus in relation to Christmas or Easter, which was not observed at all in the home in which he grew up. And so when he first met a young lady who said that she wouldn't have anything to do with him unless he was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and was serious about Bible study, he didn't. it was like she was speaking a foreign language to him. He had no idea what that meant, and there were hours of discussion before he began to understand what those things meant, and he attended church and Bible class for about a year before he decided that he would believe in Jesus as his Savior who died on the cross for him, and then he wouldn't tell anybody for another six weeks or two months because he didn't want to have done it simply because he was interested in this young lady. So there are people like that all around us. So we, there's no set formula 
for witnessing. But there is a body of knowledge and information that we must communicate. And when we study Acts, we see that this is true of the apostles when they are when they're witnessing. If you look at Acts 2 and Acts 3, Peter is talking to Jews in Jerusalem who are very familiar with what has just transpired in the last two or three months, many of whom saw Jesus and had heard Jesus teach, and they are in one context. But then when you get over and you're talking to, looking at Paul in Acts 13 or in Acts 17 when he's talking to Gentiles who aren't, who don't even have an understanding of one personal infinite God who created the heavens and the earth and, earth and all that is in them, he doesn't start with Jesus. He starts with creation and identifying the God of creation because you can't just start talking to somebody about God because what they're hearing from you in terms of their background may be something totally different from what the Bible speaks about God. So we have to be flexible. We have to talk to people in terms of what they understand, who they are, and what's going on. And we don't need to get we don't need to be involved in drive-by evangelism, just shooting a gospel bullet at somebody because we are too lazy to become learned and educated and capable at dialoguing with people. And it, you know, the only what I've discovered is the only way you learn to witness to people is to witness to people. And the only way you learn to handle the mistakes that you make is to make the mistakes. And we've all done that. You know what I mean. You start talking to somebody, and they ask you a question, you just sort of freeze up inside going, oh, I don't know the answer to that. I don't want to do this anymore. It's just too threatening. I don't, I don't know this. I, I thought I knew something. I don't know anything. And, and we get like that. And so rather than witness and get trained and learn the content of the gospel, we just kind of keep our mouth shut and say, well, God, if, God, if they're positive, God will get the gospel to them. And that's true. But the thing is, you miss out on the privilege of being used by God to lead somebody to the Lord. So we have to understand the gospel, what it is and how to communicate it. And I'm pretty much focusing in just this little three or four week series on just trying to clarify the content of the gospel. So the first question is, what should we communicate to those to whom we witness? What did the apostles say? Go back, read through Acts. What did they say? What was in their package of content that they communicated? That's one side of the question. The other question is, is it necessary to believe in the resurrection in order to be justified? Is it necessary to believe in the resurrection in order to be Justified. Now, this question is a an important question, one that was raised at the pastors' conference this last uh, this last month. Now, let me just put a caveat in here about these about pastors' conferences. This is like any sort of professional organization where men come together and they present papers and research for a peer review, one might say. And there are things that are presented in papers. And there are responses that are made and clarifications that are made along the way. So sometimes you will hear somebody make some statements in something that they present, and it may get challenged later on. I know of at least 
one paper that was presented this last time where the person who presented it has been challenged on two or three points and is going back and rewriting parts of it because that's the process of how we grow and how we come to understand uh, truth and clarify our thinking. And every one of us as pastors go through that. Some people get the idea that if you've got the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher, isn't it wonderful? You can just open up the Bible and you can tell people what it means. That's the silliest, most superficial thing I have ever heard. And you'd be surprised how many people I've heard say something like that or think it. it just It's a communication gift that God gives to men, but you have to be trained in order to study the Bible and in order to be able to communicate it. It doesn't just happen. We're not mystics. God doesn't just sort of go wave his magic wand over you, and all of a sudden uh, you are a John Chrysostom, which means golden mouth. It doesn't just happen. It takes study. It takes practice. It, you have to learn and grow, and we all make mistakes as we go along. Well, last time I started off in... 1 Corinthians 15, and I made some points that are that you must remember as we go into Romans 10, or you won't understand Romans 10. I pointed out that the term gospel has a broad use and a narrow use. The narrow use is, uh, or the broad use rather, is the view that presents all the good news of our not only our justification but also the spiritual life how to have eternal life, and once you have it, how to live uh, the new life that God gives you. The narrow use is just simply that narrow section, what do we do to be justified in order to go to heaven, uh, what exactly is the content there. When we looked at the first four, five verses of, of 1 Corinthians, Paul said, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, broad use of the term. The base, in, in this case, it's the basics of Christianity. And what was important was this last phrase where he states, in which also you stand, and I pointed out this is a Greek word, and the verb tense is a perfect tense, and a perfect tense indicates present reality from a completed past action. Now, the reason I'm reinforcing this is this is showing that 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about present reality from a completed past action. The completed past action was their justification. The present reality is their present spiritual spiritual life. This was reinforced in the second verse where he says, by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preach to you. And are saved there, I pointed out, is a present tense. And then we looked at this chart. Now, this is one of the greatest charts that you can ever understand. For, for being able to grasp Scripture. We talk about how the word save is used in three tenses. Phase one is justification. When we believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins and we receive the imputation of his righteousness and God declares us just at the same time we're regenerated and we receive eternal life. That's what we mean by phase one. It takes place in an instant in time. Phase two is progressive. It's also called experiential sanctification or progressive sanctification or our spiritual life. It's what takes place after justification. So I am trying to be precise in my terminology and call this post-justification, not post-salvation. That term gets fuzzy, post-justification. 
And then we have phase three, which is glorification. Now, justification focuses on being saved from the penalty of sin rather than having an eternal destiny in the lake of fire. You now have an eternal destiny in heaven. This is the term you were saved. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved, past tense. We are saved from the power of sin. You are being saved. So uh, that refers to our spiritual growth, uh, freed from the power of sin, and then finally saved from the presence of sin. You will be saved, future tense. You have to keep that in mind. Saved is used all three ways. So right now you can say of each one of us, we were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And the word saved refers to all three of those. So somebody may ask, are you saved? If they ask me that, I'll say, no, I'm not saved yet. I'm not. I'm thinking saved in terms of phase three. They're thinking saved in terms of phase one. See, it's easy to get confused. So we have to be careful how we define those terms. So in 1 Corinthians 15:2, I corrected that to read, by which also you are being saved, i.e. growing spiritually. That's the implication he's drawing from resurrection in this chapter. He's not talking about how to be justified. He's talking about the implications of resurrection for their ongoing spiritual life. So in verse 3, he said, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Often people go to this verse and say, see, this defines the content of the gospel, uh, that Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. Well, the problem with that exegetically is, and grammatically, there are four statements that define the object of what Paul taught them. Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he rose the third day, and he appeared to Peter. So if you're going to say that this is a definition of the core of the gospel of what somebody must believe to be saved, you have to believe he also appeared to Peter in the twelve. Now, I don't think any of us would want to go that far. And that's why I'm pointing this out, is that Paul isn't talking about what needs to be believed in order to be justified. He's talking to the Corinthians who have now come to a point where they're doubting the importance of resurrection. They're saying, ah, oh, you know, that doesn't happen. They've gone back to be influenced by their Greek philosophy, and they're just saying, you know, resurrection, who, who ne- needs that? That's just some secondary idea. And what Paul is going to do in 1 Corinthians 15 is say, no, this is at the very core of understanding your spiritual life. So I went from that to point out this quote from Lewisbury Chafer, that preaching the gospel is telling something about Christ and his finished work for them, which they are to believe. See, the focus is on Christ and his finished work on the cross. He then says in the last sentence, the gospel has not been preached. In other words, this is what you tell people. The gospel has not been preached until a personal message concerning a crucified and living Savior has been presented and in a form which calls for the response of personal faith. See, when we present the gospel, we're presenting Christ as fully God and resurrected. That's different from saying what is necessary for me to know and believe in order to be saved. And the reason I raise that is if if I'm three years old or four years old, and in my case I was six when I trusted Christ, 
I'm not sure I really grasped the resurrection at that point. And what happened at the last conference was that people began to ask the question, gosh, I don't remember resurrection being an issue or being uh, highlighted when I trusted Christ. Am I really saved? Do I really believe in the resurrection then or, or not? Well, I don't, I don't know. Well, I think that's a problem. We may not have understood or focused on the resurrection at that time, but that doesn't mean we didn't believe it. And I pointed out last time that there's a difference between saying you, 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 you disbelieving in the resurrection and just, just not having it real clear. You're, you're believing in a living Savior. You're just not, you're, you're not highlighting that as, as, as essential to, uh, to the gospel. So, in terms of the question I'm addressing, this is it. And I have to make this clear because you can take what I'm saying out of context and, and not understand this. And I just want this to be crystal clear. Is there a clear statement in the Scripture that a person must believe in not only the death of Christ, but also, as in two equal elements, also have a clear conscious belief in the resurrection as well. See, that's different from just saying, having had the gospel presented as a living Savior, and I'm believing Christ died for me, and implicitly I'm believing in a living Savior, but nobody's putting a spotlight on the resurrection as a second element in the, in the belief proposition. So, that view would be expressed as faith in the death of Christ plus faith in the resurrection of Christ. And I don't see that as being any different from a faith in, in Christ plus doing good, something else. You're implicitly adding works to the gospel, and Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 that that's, that's heresy. Let that person be anathema. Once you add anything to grace Faith and grace alone, you destroy it. And I think that's what may be happening here, and I will show this very clearly both this week and next week. So we come to this passage in Romans 10, 9, and 10 that looks for all the world as saying that not only do I have to confess with my mouth, making a public affirmation, many will say, that Jesus is Lord. Maybe some of you were at a Baptist church, and that was the way in which you were saved. Trust me, you're still saved. Even if you invited Jesus into your heart, you're still saved. God knows that you were believing in Jesus and what he did to save you. And that's the essence of salvation. But some will say, you've got to come forward, make a public confession, and now you're saved. So Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Robbie, isn't that clear? Isn't that just as clear as a bell that you've got to believe in the resurrection? Well, we've got to ask some questions. Four, actually, I came up with more before, after I made the heading. Six questions. Ignore the heading. Six questions. First question is, how does Romans 10, 9 and 10 fit in the context of Romans 9 through 11? Remember, a text without a context is a pretext. And a lot of people will go in and they'll say, see, that's just talking about salvation, and they'll just jerk it out of context. 
You can also remember that when you take the text out of a context, you're left with a con job. Second question also relates to context, and that is how does this verse fit within the context of Romans? What is Paul saying in this letter to the Romans? Is he telling them in Romans chapter 10 how to be justified, or is something else going on here? Third, we have to address the immediate context of Romans 10, 9, and 10, and by that I mean we have to look at what, is starting, what he is saying beginning in verse 5 where he says, For Moses writes, and going down through verse 13, and if you notice in your Bibles, you probably have a number of verses that are in italics. That indicates, or in some cases uppercase, indicates that they are quotations from the Old Testament. And what you will note from that is that there are several verses that lead into verse 9 that quote Old Testament passages. Verse 5 quotes an Old Testament passage, verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8. And then following the verses we're looking at, you have Old Testament quotes in verse 11 and again in verse 13. So we better understand what those verses are saying in their original context in Deuteronomy 30 and Isaiah 51 and uh, Joel 2, or we may be making this say something completely different. So the first three questions have to do with context. Then the next two have to do with words. What does he mean by confess with your mouth? Is this public confession? Or can you say this is just an idiom for mental, a mental statement, a mental confession? Does it have to be public? What does he mean by public? In front of one person or in front of 100 people? Five, what does he mean by saved and salvation? These have to do with word studies. To understand this, you have to really get a grasp, a big picture, of the book of Romans because we have to fit this within that particular, that particular contents, context. So, turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Or the last, the last one, the sixth one, what does he mean by righteousness? So saved and salvation have to be identified. And righteousness, is this justification righteousness, imputed righteousness, or is this experiential righteousness? Let's go to the beginning of Romans. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Most scholars correctly, I believe, identify this as Paul's thesis statement for the letter. This is where he identifies what he is going to be talking about in this letter. He's talking about the righteousness of God and how the righteousness of God is related to sinful mankind. How the righteousness of God is related to sinful mankind. So in Romans 1.16 he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. What's the important word there? Gospel. Is it narrow or broad, we must ask? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, that is, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. For in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous 
shall live by faith. A couple of things we need to note here. First of all, the last phrase says that the righteous shall live by faith. Is that justification or sanctification? Is this a phase one statement or phase two statement? We're talking about uh, being saved from the penalty of sin or being saved from the power of sin. It's talking about being saved from the power of sin. It's talking the, the righteous man shall live by faith. It's talking about how you live after you are justified. So that's phase two, clearly. If we back up to the first phrase in 117, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, that first faith is belief that saves, that justifies you, and the second faith is a faith that is characteristic of your post-salvation, post-justification spiritual growth. So having understood in the immediate context that Paul has a broad nuance here, when we go back to 116 and he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, it's clear from the immediate context that by gospel he doesn't mean the information you need to know in order to be justified. He's using it to describe the totality of Christian doctrine, what you need not only to understand how to have, how to have new life in Christ, but how to live on the basis of that new life in Christ. And so he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so you say, well, see right there it says salvation. This is a salvation text. Well, in American evangelicalism, we want to use that word salvation to refer to only to phase one. But as I said, that's not necessarily true. In Romans, you can do, and we'll do a little more of this next week, in Romans, the word group related to salvation, sozo, the verb, and soteria, the noun, are never used as a synonym for justification. Not one time. That is so important. And if you don't understand that, you will misinterpret many verses in Romans. Sozo, salvation in Romans is never a synonym for justification. Now, if we think about the core meaning of the word sozo, it can mean, it means to deliver from something. And if it's, the context is talking about deliverance from, uh, from an illness, then we would translate it as healing. And there are passages in the Bible where sozo is used for healing from a physical disease. In other passages, it is more the idea of deliverance from some kind of a problem or situation or circumstance. Now, if we look at the context here, Paul uses these two words, gospel and salvation, together. But the next verse, Romans 1.18, describes what the deliverance is from. For the wrath of God is is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What Paul is talking about being saved from is the wrath of God now, not future condemnation. In Paul, the wrath of God is a present 
judgment of God on fallen man, not future condemnation in an eternal lake of fire. He doesn't use it that way. We want to read it that way, but he doesn't use it that way. So the immediate context indicates the contrast of salvation, that the salvation or deliverance to the believer is from the wrath of God that is currently being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is, this is the context. So right away we know that, that salvation is not being used to refer to a narrow gospel or justification, but it is used to describe deliverance from the present condemnation, the present experience of divine judgment, divine discipline on mankind uh, in time. Now, Paul takes this whole idea of righteousness, the righteousness of God, as the framework for this letter. He is talking about the righteousness of God. Well, how do you know that? Well, he uses the noun dikaiosune, just that noun. Well, I'm not talking about the verb form from it, dikaio, which is to be justified, or dikaios, which means righteous or justified. I'm not looking at those. And those words are used a lot in Romans. We're just going to look at one word, righteousness, the quality of being righteous, dikaiosune. That word is used 76 times in this epistle. That ought to tell you something. Then when you add the others, you're going to probably come close to 200 total uses of all of these words. What is Romans about? Romans is about the righteousness of God and how man can have the righteousness of God so that we can be declared just by God. That is what Romans is all about, the righteousness of God or defending or declaring how God is righteous and maintains his integrity, his righteousness throughout his dealings with man. And at the core, at the center, let's say, of this epistle, he seems to digress from this theme. Actually, he doesn't. Because when we come to Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, and the verse we're looking at is right there, in the middle of chapter 10, he starts talking about Israel. He starts talking about God's righteousness in relation to the Jews and to Israel. And at the end of that section, and this is one of the things that really cleared me, cleared me up on Romans 10, 9, and 10. At the end of Romans, 11, Romans 9, 10, and 11, he talks about the future salvation of the Jews. He's not talking about justification there. He's talking about physical deliverance in Romans chapter 11. And in Romans chapter 11, when he talks about Israel, he's always talking about corporate Israel. He's viewing them not as individuals, but as a collective group who are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in Romans 9 and 10 and 11, he always speaks of Israel as this collective group And he says in Romans 9, not all Israel is of Israel because just because you're a physical descendant doesn't mean you're a spiritual descendant. And it is only those Jews who follow Abraham in faith that are true Israel. And that's of whom he is speaking. And he is speaking of them in terms of their future deliverance. 
But before I get into that, we have to lay a little more groundwork. Context. In Romans 1, 18 through 5.21, Paul relates Israel to the righteousness of God and justification. In these chapters, he spends the first three chapters related to condemnation, that man doesn't measure up to God's righteousness. The Gentiles don't in the second half of 1 and chapter 2, and, uh, and, and uh, chapter 1 rather, and in chapter 2, he relates that to the Jews, that they don't measure up either, even though they have morality and the law, they don't measure up to God's righteousness. Then in chapters, the last half of chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5, he talks about justification. How are we justified before a righteous God? And his conclusion is that we are justified by faith alone, just as Abraham was justified by faith alone. And that is the core of his discussion on how a person moves from being unjustified to justified, from being uh, unregenerate to regenerate, from being, as we might say, unsaved to saved. But for Paul, the term is justified. That's the term he uses in in, uh, 3, 4, and 5. He finishes his discussion on phase 1 at the end of chapter 5. Beginning in chapter 6, he starts talking about the spiritual life after you're justified. In 6.1 through 8.17, he relates Israel to the righteousness of God and sanctification through the contrast of the law. He's in, it is addressed also as well to Gentiles, and he is explaining that we now live on the basis of the newness of life that we have in Christ as seen in his resurrection. In 8:18 8, to 39, he's going to relate, uh, begin the transition to focusing specifically on Israel, and he relates Israel in those verses to the righteousness of God and glorification. And when he comes to the end of chapter 8, he will make a statement that I quote every Sunday morning, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, nor any other thing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. An extremely bold promise of security in the love of God. Ah, but the objector says, what about Israel? God doesn't love them anymore. God's not taking care of them anymore. How can you say we're secure in God's promise and God has turned his back on his people? So Paul is going to answer that and show that God has not turned his back on his people, and that's the thrust of Romans 9 to 11 and how God's righteousness will eventually bring deliverance to the nation Israel. So in chapter 9 through 11, he relates Israel to the righteousness of God and its vindication. And then the last uh, chapters from 12 through 16 relate Israel to the righteousness of God and its practical application. So Israel's there, but 9, 10, and 11 focus specifically on Israel and God's righteousness. And we look at Romans 9, 10, and 11 we see that Romans 9 demonstrates the righteousness of God in his rejection of national Israel, not individuals, because individuals are still saved, justified. Romans chapter 10, he demonstrates that the rejection is based on Israel's corporate neglect as a nation 
of the revelation given to them. And in chapter 11, he then answers the question, has God then cast permanently away his people? No, for he still has a plan for national ethnic Israel. And so it is in the middle of that that he is going to make this statement that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will have eternal life. We will be saved, rather. Now, if you look at the end of chapter 11, just as a wrap-up, 11.25, he says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, that is, the mystery of a future restoration of Israel, the uh, inclusion of the natural branches or grafting the natural branches back into the olive tree. He says, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness is part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all, and that means it's a hutos there, meaning, and in this manner, all Israel will be saved. And then he has two Old Testament uh, quotes And it is these quotes from Isaiah 59 and Psalm 14 where he talks about their deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And it's not talking about, it's not talking about that's when they all become individually justified. It's talking about when they corporately become saved. And so there is the conclusion that is, uh, made there in verse 26, this is how they're all saved or delivered, not justified. That is not talking about their justification. So, we re- also have to recognize some things from Romans 6, and I'll begin there next time. But what I want you to realize is the importance of context here, and that, and you have to be here next time. Saved in Romans nine, in Romans ten nine and ten doesn't mean justified, and righteousness there is not talking about uh, imputation of righteousness. But, and that passage is surrounded by quotations both leading into it and coming out of it, that come out of the out of Old Testament passages that, without exception, talk about God's promise to restore national Israel to the land he promised to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And unless Paul is just making up doctrine, he's got to be applying those in Romans 10 in the sense that they were originally intended, which has to do with the future deliverance of the nation Israel when Jesus returns at the second coming. And that's what the context of Joel 2, when they call on the name of the Lord, when they call on Jesus Christ to come and deliver them, it is then that they will be delivered from what is happening during the tribulation period. And that's what Romans 10, 9, and 10 is talking about, and you'll see it next time. It isn't talking about getting justified. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning to perhaps focus, clarify our thinking on just how we were saved, what you did for us, how we received righteousness, but also coming to a greater understanding of how to communicate who who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross, that he is the one who was crucified. He 
He died physically. He died spiritually. He was buried, and he rose again on the third day. This is essential information in terms of understanding who Jesus is and that he died as our substitute, and that is where he did the justifying work on the cross. And that we must understand what he did, who he is, and what he did in order to be saved. But yet, even a child can grasp at some level that Jesus is not just another man and that Jesus is the one who died for his sins, and that's the focal point. It's true for anyone here. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, this is your opportunity to believe that he died on the cross for your sins. He's your substitute. He's the sacrifice that paid that penalty. And by trusting in him and him alone, you have eternal life. Father, we pray that for the rest of us, you challenge us with these truths that we might come to a greater understanding of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.